Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Our guest today is Scott Kushner, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Rhode Island's Harrington School of Communication and Media. His scholarship and teaching explore the ways overlooked media give shape to our everyday encounters with culture. His work has appeared in venues including Space and Culture, Convergence, and New Media and Society. Most recently, he published a paper in the journal Technology and Culture titled Controlling Crowds on the Technological Management of Entertainment Audiences, and we sat down with him to learn more about how technology plays a role in the way a crowd becomes an audience. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Krishna. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this really interesting work that you're doing. Thanks, Mary Alice. It's it's really a treat to be with you today. The first question we always like to ask our guests is, can you tell us your academic origin story? How did you get to um, focus on your specific area of academic research? So um, my, my origin story, I guess, is both highly unusual and totally typical. <laughs> um, it's it's unusual in the sense that it's it's taken these kind of zigs and zags over the years. I um, my background is all in the humanities. Um, my my training was all in literary studies. My PhD is in French lit, of all things. Mm. Um, and I I was very fortunate to be in a wonderful graduate program in French at Duke. Um, had you know a fantastic advisor in, in Linda Orr, and worked with some some really wonderful scholars like David Bell and um, Alice Kaplan. Um, and over the course of my time there, uh, I shifted to media and cultural studies um, around 2005. Uh, midway through, I, I sort of found my, my interest were shifting to politics and to technology. So I did a, a, a dissertation on political blogs in France and the US, um, did field work in um, Paris in 2007 for the Sarkozy election. Um, and so it's it's kind of been the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 years or so has, has been a shift um, mm. sort of using the the kinds of skills and training that I had in literary studies um, in terms of uh, close reading and, and theory from the European traditions mostly um, and porting those from uh, literary texts into uh, a broader notion of culture. Mm. Um, and increasingly for me, an attraction to different sorts of technologies and, and media. Um, so in that way, it was kind of unusual. Um, it's it, It's been anything but a straight line. Um, and then it's also been typical in that it's been anything but a straight line uh, in that <laughs> I... I've, I completed my my graduate work in 2009, um, which was not a great time to finish a PhD. Right. Um, and it took me about six years of working as an adjunct and uh, more consistently in, in kind of para-academic um, or alt-ac positions, mm-hmm. as they call them, mm-hmm. um, until I um, was was really you know, lucky as, as most of us on the tenure track are, it's, um, as much luck as anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to, um, find myself uh, a really nice job at a nice institution with, with great colleagues. I'm at the university of Rhode Island. Um, and I've, I've got the privilege of doing the kinds of research and writing and teaching that, that I, you know, long to do for, for many years. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a funny path, but it's been a mm-hmm. good one and, and it's a good life. I, I love it. And I and I, I just said this to our, our last guest on the podcast. It's it's one of the reasons I asked the question is because I think especially younger scholars and folks that are, you know, figuring out even, you know, undergrads talking about what's your major and all that kind of stuff. There's there's just I'm trying to 
express to people that everyone answers like, oh, it was this crazy winding path. Like, you know, you don't have to have everything laid out. Um, and having it happen organically is really, I think, sometimes brings you to much, um, much more interesting and and creative places um, in terms of your career. So thank you for answering the question. And there's no right answer to the question, but I'm, I'm consistently getting similar answers, yeah. which is like, it just kind of fell in my lap. It, it, um, yeah, it, it has. Some people take a real straight line and that's, yeah. That has its advantages. Um, true, but true, true. But there, so but it's a, not a negative like thing to to you know. Not all who wander are lost. <laughs> no, not necessarily. Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. So your paper in the journal Technology and Culture traces the history of technological advancement of crowd control in entertainment venues, stadiums, music venues, theaters. Was there a particular artifact or piece of research that sparked that interest? What what kind of lit that that curiosity in you? So um, as is the case, I think with with most journal articles, this is part of a larger project right, right. Um, that's to do with the performance venue as a media technology that channels content to audiences um, and also audiences to producers. Um, mm. and, and so it's about those two kinds of channeling and the cultural and societal effects of both of those processes. And the whole thing did start with an artifact, but not one that's discussed in this paper. It started oh. um, with a with a ticket. Nice. Um, I wanted to go to a rock concert and they they had the audacity to sell all the tickets before I got mine. Um, <laughs> and I was I was annoyed and um, and I wanted to know how it worked. So okay. I, I started digging into what exactly is a ticket? What, what kind of an artifact is it? What, what kind of a, um, a technology is it? Um, and that started me down this this research path that changed my intellectual trajectory, changed uh, the kinds of work that I do. Um, led me to put a book project that I had been working on the, kind of on the back burner. Um, and I've been working on this project since about 2016, I want to say. Okay. Um, so I guess six or seven years now. Um, a piece of that work on ticketing, uh, which, you know, that that will figure as, as a good portion of this book, but a, mm -hmm. a piece of it came out a few years back in Space and Culture, which is another journal that I, I absolutely love and, and was thrilled to be um, be able to place some work in. What I learned as I was doing that is that one of the things tickets do is they control access and enforce decisions about who enters. Mm. So I started thinking about other technologies that that do the same thing. Okay. I held a, a Smithsonian Lemelson Travel to Collections Fellowship at the National Museum of American History, which is on oh, the mall wow. in Washington. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, very familiar. Um, <laughs> just down the road. Just down the road from you. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a it's a great museum. Every day um, when I went to work there, I got to walk by the Batmobile. Yes, um, the, <laughs> it's one of my favorites. The staff is awesome. I worked with Allison Oswald, who's who's an amazing archivist and um, really like uh, incredibly knowledgeable about the collections and able to sort of work with researchers if, if you have the chance uh mm -hmm. to to go in and, and do some work there it's it's absolutely uh a, a joy to, to spend time there um so i was there to do a bunch of ticketing research um and, and spend a bunch of time in in the archives collections there while i was there i i got to they they snuck me upstairs which nice. which was an adventure in and of itself it's <laughs> like you take this elevator and and you get up and it's not like the same sort of public facing space, you know, right. like shiny walls and floors and glass displays. It's it's working space. Mm -hmm. um, and they've got this library up there. And in the library, they have a, a collection of trade catalogs. Uh, and I was poking through catalogs to do with ticketing equipment. Um, and the the staff there also said, you know, you might want 
to look at this stuff too. Um, and so there was there was material on turnstiles and mm -hmm. bleachers and barriers, and that material kind of became the core of this project. Mm. Um, eventually, combined with other materials from the Hagley Museum and Library, which is in Wilmington, Delaware, so okay. just headed just the other the direction. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and then some stuff, I think some stuff came from Yale. Some stuff, I want to say, came from Texas A and M. Okay. Maybe, or maybe, or no, no, it wasn't Texas. I think it was the University of Texas at San Antonio. That's where okay. it was. I, I didn't get to go there, but the um, the special collection staff, they were kind enough to scan some materials and send them to me. So I kind of put that all in a pot and stirred it up uh, and yada, yada, yada. There, there's a paper in Space <laughs> and Culture, which, which everybody should read. That's so, and I will. That's, that's fascinating. And as soon as you said, started talking about ticketing, I was reminded of a recent, I went to a show and I'd gotten the email for the tickets and I, and I, you know, it's just like you buy them online and they send you the email. I, I tend to fumble when you have your, your ticket on your phone. Cause you have to frequently like increase your brightness and there's people behind you. And so I just printed the tickets out on a piece of paper and the, the gentleman at the door, truly my hand to God burst out laughing at me and said, you printed them out. And I said, yes, I did. And he was just like, okay. And I said, I'm, I am 40 something years old and I'm going to print my tickets. <laughs> but there, it just, there's yeah. one in every crowd. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, one of the things that I've been interested in is, you know, the, the ticket is, is an artifact that it dates back to like the 17th century, we think mm. um, it's, you know, there's, there's some dispute as to when the first theater ticket was, was issued. Um, and uh, the, the big obvious change in our lifetime has been the shift away from a material support away right. from the paper that you use at that show yeah. um, to, uh, to some kind of a digital or, mm -hmm. or, you know, what we understand to be a non-physical support, although, it actually is very much physical. Mm. Um, and one of the the consequences of this is to do with the ways that the ticketing agents or the 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 infrastructure that supports the the ticketing credential that we hold in our hands, they can sort of do things to it that they weren't able to do before in terms mm. of imposed restrictions on what you're allowed to do with it. So if it's not a paper ticket, if it's just a just a an entry in a in a database somewhere that tells your phone to display something at the right moment. It it sets new rules about what you're allowed to do with it. Are you able to give it to a friend? Exactly. When can you do that? Are you able mm -hmm. to sell it? Under right. what terms are you able to sell it? At what time are you able to sell it? Um, and then there's also what they refer to as security features that mm -hmm. have effects on um, how you use it, when you use it, and even what form you use it in. So uh, when you were telling your story about uh, using a, a printout of the ticket many of the tickets uh so, you know so you can print a pdf sometimes of of mm -hmm. the ticket but many of them are actually within like a you know a gated garden or a walled garden kind of Interface. environment yeah. in an app um and those barcodes will change they'll turn over sometimes every 60 or 90 seconds precisely to prevent somebody from printing it or more likely from screenshotting it and giving right. a screenshot to a friend so that they can enter um, or they can get into a better, you know, a better section, section of seating mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so every 90 seconds is a new code, which means your printout wouldn't have gotten you in. If it, ah, well, if this was a tiny little show, but it was, yeah, okay. interesting. And yeah. I, and now I'm thinking, and I'm, again, this is, I'm just going off on a tangent now, but now I'm thinking about the artifacts as souvenirs, you know, all of this Ticketmaster stubs I have from the nineties squirreled away in a box somewhere in my closet. And like every once in a while I go through and I'm like, Oh, remember this show. And it's like that 
doesn't, my kids won't have that. And I don't know, there's like a, I'm, well, sad, I'm sad about that in a funny way. So there, there's a solution to that, Okay. Um, which is that uh, there, there's been, I, I don't think it's it's really taken off yet, but the desire that you're describing for the collectible is, is something that um, is common. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're you're not the only one who who has that want to have the material thing to save mm-hmm. as a as a memento or to collect as as evidence of uh, fandom or or just of having been there. Um, and there have been some attempts to sell as an add-on a paper ticket, which doesn't <laughs> allow you to get in. Ah, but does allow you to collect it. Uh, oh, does allow you to keep it in a shoebox. Or, they give or, you a PDF. Uh, yeah. No, they they'll actually. Oh, they send you. you. Oh, they'll they send you a, a ticket. And it, all it really is is it's like a commemorative right. token on old right. ticket stock. It's like commemorative um, coins. They're not actually legal tender. They just are there to celebrate the thing. Precisely. Yeah. So I've I've seen some of this. I actually had a paper. Um, I think this one was in Convergence, a few years back. That was about. Uh, it was about the shift from. Um, uh, from materially tangible recordings to intangible recordings streaming audio which which are materialized elsewhere but to us on the the user end we don't we don't feel them as as anything Mm. we can touch um and i was looking at one fan community a particularly rabid fan community that had the the habit of collecting recordings of of live performance who were with technological shifts, they were stripped of the ability to maintain those collections. It became mm. centralized in a streaming uh, a streaming app. Um, and so the the band's management saw that the the fans who had the habit of collecting things suddenly couldn't collect the thing that they had become accustomed to collecting. So they started selling them more things that they could collect that were associated with individual performances, like, mm. you know, show specific t-shirts show specific um like coins or merit badges or things mm. like that anything that they could they could imagine and eventually tickets um because because they they weren't giving people paper tickets any longer so the ticket because it is this tangible thing that we collect but as you saw that day when you when you walked in with uh with the pdf it's it's also piece it's a piece of this bigger technological system right um so like the ticket works with the turnstile works with the ticket taker works with the computer database that verifies the ticket collaborates with the hallway that you walk through and eventually the whatever the yeah the doorway um any ushers that you encounter any railings or walkways lighting design sound design um every aspect of the venue in some sense is meant to channel you in a certain mm-hmm. um mode of comportment into the space where the performance takes place um, and then encourages you to behave in a certain way while you're in that space. Um, so all of these technologies are, are kind of part of this larger um, apparatus of, exactly. of crowd control. Yeah, I thank you. And that that perfectly segues to what I was actually going to ask you next, which is reading your paper. You know, you talk about all that. You talk about how these turnstiles and barriers and seats are, are wrapped into that idea that the crowd, and I'm quoting here, can be sifted, their bodies calmed and organized, their energies channeled to profit and their potential for violence dissipated, which really uh, floored me, really. It sort of struck me because I have always very naively assumed that everything in a venue is designed for safety. I always assumed it was just in the sense that we don't want to stampede. We don't, we want people to navigate a small space safely, but um, I'm curious in terms of sort of like how the turnstiles and the barriers work to calm and organize for the, truly for the financial benefit of the venue. And and I was hoping you could speak a little more on that and and, and how that 
you see these technologies um, as as through that lens and to that end. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the first thing is to disentangle the idea that the safety of the crowd and the financial benefit of the venue are are not the same thing. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's there are the famous kind of crowd control disasters like mm -hmm. uh, the Altamont Festival in in 1969 or the Hillsboro um, Stampede in in England. Um, instances where a crowd of people did, uh, in one way or another, crush, trample, kill um, intentionally or, or unintentionally, you know, become agitated, become. Uh, disorderly as, as the venues would put it uncontrollable um and that is uh among other things not particularly good for business um mm, you know mm -hmm. no no venue operator wants to be known as oh it's the place where you go if you'd like to be trampled um, <laughs> the place where this thing happened and this the yeah, place where exactly. this thing happened is is yeah. not it's not a good look it's for, not <laughs> for a theater <laughs> exactly. or, or you're not gonna a, put that on the wall stadium. yeah right right no so um Safety is very much part of the work and and part of the 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 goal of of these technologies. The reasons why venue operators will deploy them, um, but it's not the only one. I mean, these things these things are kind of uh, they have multiple uh, motivations and and multiple effects. Um, so there is that that safety dimension, um, but but turnstiles especially uh, they're they're kind of the most visible and most obvious mechanism that I that I write about in this paper. Mm -hmm. um, they they've also got this this function of organizing the crowd by atomizing it. Um, mm. So this idea I I am kind of uh, inspired by this German historian of technology named Stefan Hörner who mm -hmm. he wrote this book on the New York subway which is which is really good um, and he he has this piece about turnstiles um, which he describes as apparatuses of separation. Mm. Uh, so the idea is that on one side of the turnstile, you've got this crowd, this undifferentiated crowd, and then it gets processed as it mm. passes through the turnstiles. And you go through a turnstile, if you're using them the right way, you go through them one at a time. Um, and so on one side, you've got this mass. And on the other side, you've got this rationalized stream of audience members that passes through to the other side. Mm. Um, and just as a a side note here, this work that the, the turnstile is doing is actually a form of mediation, um, as media theory would understand it. Um, and so th this is coming out of the, the German media theory tradition, which is largely in the, in the States known as uh, under the name of Friedrich Kietla, the, the kind of historian of media. Um, there's these three functions that, that media technologies will execute. Some of them are obvious to us, storage, so like a, a record stores Mm -hmm. things that we recognize as sound or film stores, images, uh, books, stores, text. Um, another is transmission. So a radio transmitter will will broadcast a signal um, uh, or a, a pipe will will transmit water. Mm -hmm. um, but then the third function, and it's the one that, that Kittler himself probably spends the least time talking about, is processing. Um, and processing is the idea that something goes in and something different comes out the other side. Uh -huh. So this is what a computer does, or it's what right. like a, an encoder or a decoder does um, in like a uh, an audio processing tool, right? Um, or a video processing tool, uh, or in a turnstile. The crowd goes in, and the audience comes out. 
Mm. Um, so it has this effect of processing. Uh, it's been slowed down. It's been broken up. Um, and the trade literature that I was consulting um, on turnstiles and companion technologies like barriers and stanchions and rope lines is just full of words like calm and Order. These were explicitly marketed as devices that settled audiences down. Mm -hmm. um, turnstiles are often paired in performance venues with attendants and mm -hmm. ticket takers, like, like the guy who laughed at you. Right. <laughs> um, they're acting as enforcers. You know, they're not just laughing. They're they're sort of like uh they're a sign they're guardians, of yeah. they're guardians. They're like a they're like there to signify the the power that the venue is imposing upon people who want to come in that right. we're we're watching we're making decisions about whether your ticket is valid or not mm -hmm. um do you have the right code is it for the right day is it mm -hmm. a fake is it on the right kind of medium is it on paper or a screen mm -hmm. will we accept it on paper mm -hmm. this ticket taker is making these decisions usually with a smile at mm -hmm. least these days mm -hmm. um for for many crowds um, and, you know, sometimes they're wearing a uniform or a name tag, something that marks them as somehow holding some some power within this space to execute this duty. And they might point you in one direction or another, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe not in a smaller venue like the one you described, but certainly mm -hmm. in a theater. Or right. A upstairs, hall. downstairs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You go to the left, you go to the right, whatever. They're sorting bodies out. Um, mm. And so paired with the turnstile, they're executing these decisions, not only the binary in out decision but also this broader set of decisions about which bodies get the credentialing device that helps them make this decision and then the turnstiles the processing device that slows that crowd down and allows it to be sifted later on barriers like rope lines and railings offer psychological cues about mm -hmm. where to go you, you, i mean you can jump the rope <laughs> true that yes. we probably all have um but you usually don't so both the turnstile manufacturers and the stanchion manufacturers they talk about this psychological effect of the barrier right um, and most of the time when we're in these performance venues we're not encountering these like airtight barriers or these 10-foot fences we're usually encountering things like ropes or things like railings um the perry turnstile uh company which is one of the oldest and still i think one of the largest um, turnstile manufacturers in the U.S. and probably the world, they even say that people respond better, more calmly, which is what they mean by better, to mm. an environmental cue like a railing than they do to a verbal instruction. People don't want to be told what to do. Uh, they want to be suggested. But they're usually pretty pliant if they're sort of gently corralled in one direction or another. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Natasha Dowschul has has written about this um, in her book on Las Vegas casinos. She she has this really oh. cool passage about oh the yeah hallway, I can see that yeah yeah the hallway you and enter the and it's the smell and the like everything about it yeah 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 right so the these sort of environmental cues can have great effect on how we behave and how we act where we go and at which speed we go and which way we go um, all of this equipment has this effect of transforming that mass of people on one side into a calm rationalized audience on the other. This is so fascinating to me. And there is a whole nother conversation about Southwest Airlines that I want to have with you, but we don't have the time for that today. But I'm thinking about that too. And about like the ABC and when people try to sneak in and they're like, this is only for B. And I just, I don't know. I just, I find all of this so fascinating. Yeah. I'll, I'll just, I'm, I, I won't, because I know, I know time is, is precious, but <laughs> we I don't will be here say for three that hours. the, the, um, 
the intellectual infrastructure on which the the ticketing experience that we have today with companies like Ticketmaster, right. um, especially the pricing structures. Right. So Ticketmaster has, has gotten really into dynamic pricing over the last few years, which is infuriating. Dynamic is such a nice word. <laughs> it's a nice word. And they, they're really good at it. And the bands who want mm-hmm. you to think that they're on your side, they actually love it because mm-hmm. they're getting all the money that the brokers used to get. Um, but all that technology is old technology and it's old math and old science. It, it, it was developed in the 70s when the airlines were deregulated. They used it first. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, they so call it is it yield connected. management. It's they call totally it connected. Yield management. They're textbooks. Management. I mean, it's been decades they've been doing it. Ticketmaster and, and the other ticketing companies, they've wanted to do it for years and years and years, but they ran into social friction, mm. especially around popular music, where right. um, the, the artists like to position themselves culturally on the side of the audience. Of the people, yeah. So they they depress their um they would depress their ticket prices um in order in order to to maintain that that appearance. That but connection. Then mm-hmm. The market actually pushed the ticket prices up, which is what made ticket brokers really wealthy um and continues to make them very wealthy. So another moment in your paper as I was reading it that really um that really struck me was you talk about how seats and turnstiles are used to enforce racial and class segregation. That didn't surprise me, but um, you, and again, I'm quoting you, each structure is associated with hierarchies of control. Um, and I'm curious how, how these hierarchies still exist in entertainment spaces today. Yeah. I mean, they, they do. It's, it's mostly the same equipment mm-hmm. or the descendants of that equipment. And I, I think we can see those, those hierarchies. If we look for them, they're, they're just being enforced in a more subtle way. And the mm. framework, the broader cultural framework that they're inserted in is one where we've really, we've come to be naturalized to the, to the idea of price-based discrimination. And um, we've come to be naturalized to the idea that uh, everything has a price. Everything mm. can be bought, everything can be sold, every, anything can be commoditized. Mm. Um, so the, the technologies that enforced the legal regime of racial segregation in the 19th and 20th centuries in the US, it, it's, it's still operating. Um, the way that I think you can see this probably most clearly is in the architectural design um, of recent sports venues. Um, it's really visible there in part just because they're so big. So okay. like everything is is so, you know, so, Blown so big. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these new stadiums and arenas uh, and ballparks, they are centered on creating segregated audience experiences that are based on class um, or at least based on ability and willingness to pay, which often overlaps with race and with age and, and with gender. Um, and, and this isn't really new. So right. um, Chad Seyfried, is, 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 who's a, um, I guess he's a sociologist of sport. He's done a, a lot of work on how um, early baseball parks, you know, dating back to the like the 1890s, mm-hmm. they would segregate audiences by class. Um, they would, they, you know, so this is kind of the origin of like the bleachers, which were far wow. from the field and, and you know, the nice grandstand seats, which were close by. That was really a means of of class segregation. Um, and he he actually writes about how the rules by which baseball is played today were unsurprisingly uh, fluid in the late nineteenth century. there were there were a couple of different sets of rules. um i'm not I'm not a sport historian, so I, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Um, but I believe the rules we 
we know today were originated from some rules that were used in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And it seems that now I might be sort of like blending some of my, my media studies mind with, with the sport history. Baseball was the logical uh, sport for that moment in media history, because Mm -hmm. the media that existed to bring a large crowd into that performance space was the stadium. Mm. In the 1890s, there were newspapers, print existed clearly, um, and there were lots of newspapers that that had an increasingly literate um, public to sell to, but there was no radio and there was no television. Mm. So the medium that you could use to to bring a game to lots of people at one time was a building, it was a mm. stadium. So this is the moment when the ballpark emerges and baseball becomes this really um key sport at this moment in American cultural and economic history because it's played primarily in one corner of a large field. Interesting. So since all the action takes place mostly in that like 90 foot square diamond at one corner of the field, you can place a premium on the seats Mm -hmm. that are around that corner of the field and sell that to upper class customers. Mm-hmm. And then the further you get away from that diamond, all the way to the bleachers out in left field, wow. those become seats that you can sell to a more popular crowd, to, to a more working class crowd at a lower price point. So this isn't new. What we're seeing today, though, is the creation of uh, what I think of as almost like a walled garden, like a mm-hmm. venue within a venue. So these new stadiums and sports arenas um, they will often take the seating sections that are nearest to the action, um, not only sell them at a higher price point, they'll also kind of close them off mm-hmm. uh, within the venue. They'll they'll sort of erect the those barriers. There, mm-hmm. Yeah, the boxes, but not just the boxes. So I was looking at the, I think it's called, it, what do they call it now? It was the key center. It was the Seattle Arena. It's, it's in downtown <laughs> Seattle. I think it's Climate Pledge Arena is what they call it now. Oh, that, that's what okay. they sold the rights to. <laughs> Um, they It'll be different it. by the time this this airs, <laughs> probably. I, in all likelihood, yeah, I'm right. sure the climate pledge will be broken by that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> they they redesigned and rebuilt this arena. It's it's an old building. It, okay. I think the building dates to the 60s or 70s. Um, this and is an indoor think, sports arena. Yeah, it's it's where I think they play basketball there. Okay, okay. It's I think this is the third iteration of it, and it, it's it's this land. If you've been to Seattle, you may have seen it. It's near the Space Needle. It's got this okay. really like um, kind of like this peaked roof. It's okay. it's a really really striking building on the outside. I haven't been inside. Um, they When they redesign these buildings, they, they usually don't do that much to the outside. It's really the inside that matters because the inside right. is where you, you can control your revenue streams. So what they've done with the this building is on either side of the court, on the long side of the court, mm-hmm. right by the court, they've taken three sections of seating, the entire length of the court, right down by the action and turned them into what they call club seating. So this isn't like a few boxes at the front. It's the entire like 20 or 25 rows starting mm-hmm. at the court and working your way you know, up toward the, the, the top of the arena. They're separated by a railing from the sections on either side that start to wrap around the baskets. Mm, got it. Not only have they separated them by this railing, behind those sections, there's this large open space that has restaurants, mm. bars, socializing areas, mm-hmm. bathrooms, mm-hmm. staffed by private attendants, um, enforced by ticketed entry. So the people who hold the tickets, which are sold at a higher price point, um, often held by season ticket holders, 
um, they have access to this sort of privileged space that uh, is separate from not only in the seats, but also in, in the sort of experience. like the concourse, yeah. their entire experience is segregated from the experience of the people who are behind the baskets and certainly from the people who are upstairs up, yeah. up in the balconies. Um, so the technologies that enforce the segregation are the same, the right. ticket, the mm -hmm. turnstile, the barrier, the rope line, the door, the bouncer. Um, yeah. And it keeps, usher. I'm thinking about them, like the money. It's like, yes, they have the money and the means to buy those tickets, but it's also, you're buying that buffered experience, but you're also buying not having to interact with anybody else. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's where I see your point so clearly, because you're, you're buying that you're buying your own bubble of keeping the people you want around you, around you and all the, all the riffraff away. Very much so. And and that, yeah. that language that you're describing is that's also not new. Mm. So one of the reasons these ballpark owners that that are described in, in the 19th century, late 19th century, one of the reasons they wanted to to segregate the bleachers from the grandstands was it was it was a nice way to sell different price tickets and, right. you know, make some money selling a lot of tickets to a large number of people at a low price and some money selling a relatively small number of people at a high price to to, to nicer seats. Um, but another reason was the upper crust didn't want to mix mm -hmm. with the hoi polloi. They mm -hmm. they wanted their experience to be separate. Baseball provides a really easy way to do that because you put the nice price tickets in this one little corner. Corner, yeah. And then you put you put the the you know the rabble or whatever whatever <laughs> derogative term they used right. in that decade to describe the folks who sit sit out in the bleachers. The groundlings. Um, the groundlings, <laughs> certainly yeah. as as they were known in Shakespeare's time. Um, and then the basketball arena in Seattle and presumably all over the country, basketball arenas and football stadiums, th these new soccer stadiums, which major mm -hmm. league soccer teams are, are putting up all over the country, um, all include these amenities, which are tied to the to the seat um, right. uh, in order to segregate the 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 attendees um if not by class or race or gender then certainly by means and ability right. to pay which is closely bound up with with uh cl class and race and, and gender and, and age as well um so yeah i think i think to answer your question i think those higher uh, those structures uh, that enforce hierarchies of control yeah i think i think they're very much active today and Absolutely. and we're so acculturated to that logic that i, I don't know if we see it right and i mean yeah that's what before you know right when we first started this call that's what i said i said i don't think i'm ever going to walk into a venue the same way after reading your paper just the way i just you know you sort of look at it and you're like oh look there in the balcony with the nice seat but now i'm like going to look at it and be like this is a system yeah, <laughs> this is an I'm intentional sorry. I, system I, I apologize for that because it, it does it used to be something i did for fun and now <laughs> now it's work <laughs> I, I'm not I'm super into sports, but it never occurred to me until 15 minutes ago that the nature of baseball is, is one end is where it's happening, you know, and other sports like football, where you've got two end zones, there's, you know, that equalizes, you know, where the action is happening and how interesting that is, you know, soccer, you've got two nets, so things are going to move across, but it's like, it, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit mind blowing when you think about how the nature of the action of the sport is, is shaping how these things are built also that's 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 just kind of a wow moment for me so thank you for that yeah very, they, they say that football was was the, the sport that was designed for television and it, ah. it becomes prominent in the 1960s and into the 70s and you know it's clearly 
a huge, huge industry today yes. with like untold sums of money flowing through it. Um, and many of its rules and its its choreographies are designed in order to play well to cameras. And it, and yeah, and it, it does. <laughs> That's, As, I don't watch much football, but the rumor is it really does. I don't watch much either, but when I glance occasionally now and you see they've got, you know, the cameras on the wires mm -hmm. that are doing these like zooming boom shots. I mean, it's, it's cinematic at this point. It's almost laughable how it's, it's like being filmed. I mean, filmed, yeah. filmed like with a capital F it's really, it's, it's quite something from even 20 years ago. Another, another moment, another uh, sort of question I had after looking at your paper, you talk about how theater seating in particular was designed to keep audience members bodies and, and feet still, um, which resulted in applause becoming more important to Western theaters. I believe you were quoting another paper there, but I just, mm -hmm. that was a moment where I was like, well, of course we've always applauded. That's, that's always been what we did to show support or, or, or appreciation for a performance. It just really surprised me that that wasn't always the case. So I, I kind of wanted to ask like what was it like what did people before theater seating do were they just stomping their feet were they jumping around were they high-fiving like how does the what was the structure doing to still us what were we doing before that that necessitated that right it's, it's a great question um so th this is a place where theater historians have done absolutely amazing work um preceding me so you know my my contribution here is is really just to sort of report mm. um the notion of audienceship that we have today, that the audience is there to to watch the show quietly and calmly um, and in the dark, that's relatively new. Mm. Um, so in Europe, earlier theaters were designed as much as places for audiences to be seen as for audiences to watch. Okay. Uh, so like royal theaters would be organized as much around where the sovereign sat right. as around the stage. And each audience member was there to be seen and proximity to the king was, mm. was a measure of, you know, how much influence or power they had within the social structure. Um, and so those buildings were, were built I mean, they certainly, you know, they had a stage and there was often a proscenium structure of some sort that uh, that would draw attention to the stage, but they were just as much built so that society could exhibit itself to itself as they were built to. That was half um, the show. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and then there's also this parallel history, which which starts a bit later. Um, of popular theater, mm -hmm. um, a theater that was not necessarily tied to a royal court. Um, in England, it was called the legitimate theater. Um, and, you know, there was a limited number of them that could operate. Uh, they they had to be granted patents um, oh. uh, in order to, to operate legally. Uh, and eventually these produced purpose-built theater buildings for popular audiences. So the earliest theaters were, uh, some of them were like um, courtyards or even tennis courts, believe it or not. Um, that have been converted as as spaces for theatrical performance. Eventually, we start to get purpose-built theaters, um, you know, that look more like what we'd expect them to look like today. So, I mean, we all remember from high school English learning about like Shakespeare's Globe Theaters, mm -hmm. the Groundlings, and you know, all the sort of rabble that, that, mm -hmm. and and the the activity that's going on down below and the body humor and all that. <laughs> um, so that that's like something that I think most of our readers will already know about what going to the theater at least was like in moments earlier than ours. It, it was rather different. We don't right. have those close seats reserved for, you know, the, the one cent entry or the half 
the half pen century or whatever, mm-hmm. um, those close seats are, are usually very valuable. And, mm-hmm. and you, you, it's the nosebleeds that, that go at the low prices or, you know, the half, the half price tickets in, in, um, in Times Square or whatever. The, the conditions, what, what did it mean to go to a performance was those conditions were different uh, in, in different historical moments. One key text that readers might find interesting is um, a book by Mark Baer called Theater and Disorder in Late Georgian England. It's 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 about 30 years old, but it's a really good read. Um, and it's a really, I think it was <clears throat> a really key book in understanding kind of the reception of uh, theater in an earlier historical configuration and also mm-hmm. the role of the audience and what it meant to be an audience in that moment. So what Baird does um, in this book is he tells the story of a crowd revolt um, and basically a strike, an audience strike, against the Covent Garden Theatre uh, in London, which had the audacity to raise his prices mm. um, in 1809. And, and, you know, the crowd, which had had been loyal and regular attendees at, at these at these the- theatrical performances, they they wanted the old prices back. They called themselves the OPs, the old prices. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but. Okay. The story is as much about crowd control devices like the ones we've been discussing as it is about the the price on the ticket. So the prices were increased to bankroll improvements that the owner of the theater had made to uh, create better accommodations to theater goers who were paying for what was perceived to be better seating. They were making nicer boxes. Mm. And then they tried to fund it by raising the prices. Everybody's prices, Uh, yeah. Exactly. Um, So the technologies that I'm discussing here in this technology and culture paper, they were part of a shift in what cultural performance is for. Uh, The idea that it's meant to be seen, that to be an audience member is not to be rowdy, but is Mm -hmm. to be calm and to be still. Um, So we see this logic today. It's rehearsed in every ad we see for concerts or for games. You've got to be there in order to see it. You've got to be, you know, in the room where it happens, (laughs) um, as the song goes. TV's not really good. You know, it's good, but it's not good enough. You've got to be there to watch it. Yeah. to be present for it to be to be a witness to that cultural performance taking place um and most of the language you know at least for kind of common ticket buyers maybe it's you know, it's it's different for um for people in those private boxes it, but the the language the discourses around it are not really about socializing it's it's about being there it's about mm-hmm. seeing it and hearing it at that moment and in that place mm. um so uh, how is it that applause comes to be the mode of reaction, the privileged mode of reaction? Um, it's largely a function of this shift in what performance is for. If it's to be seen and if we're to be calm, then applause is like the sanctioned, mm-hmm. uh, acceptable way for an audience to react. Um, and there has been, so like um, Baz Kershaw, who, who's a, a theater historian, he, he's got this really fun piece called, Oh, for Unruly Audiences, which is about this transformation from mm. the rowdy um, kind of active audience to the the sort of more constrained uh, and held held down audience. Um, mm. And uh, the the idea is that audience members' hands are for clapping and their feet are for stomping, but they're not for walking mm. and they're not for sit marching. Mm-hmm. There's, they're for sit still. But then there's this undercurrent, which is essentially like 
you can jump up and down at a concert and you can crowd surf and do, you know, mosh page dive. All, yeah. <laughs> stage diving, all the kinds of things that, that we see in uh, different kinds, especially in popular music, uh, right. less so, you know, in, in major league sport and less though, less so in kind of the descendants of legitimate theater. Although, you know, there's all kinds of theatrical performances with different conventions. Um, but certainly in popular music, uh, it it does serve as this sort of social relief valve mm. um, where people can act uh, in ways that they might perceive as crazy, right? So we hear this discourse <laughs> among concert fans. I went to the show last night. It was nuts. I, you know, yeah. we, were, we were down in the pit. It was crazy. But it's still contained within this mm. space there's still security acting usually as a buffer between the crowd and the stage and the performers that performance space up there is is a highly controlled environment it's lit its sound is controlled its stage design is controlled um, the behaviors of the performers is often highly rehearsed from night mm -hmm. to night it might be identical as crazy right. as it looked to us on Thursday <laughs> right it might be crazy tomorrow Friday. in Ohio right right um, I mean like performers uh, famously tell the same joke, you know, in yep. between songs from stop to stop on the tour. Right. Um, there's the old <laughs> Simpson, uh, Simpsons episode where I forget who they were lampooning, but some, some classic rock band was giving a concert in Springfield and uh -huh. the guitar player peeks at the back of the guitar at the end of the encore to see what the name of the city was. And he was right. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, thank you, Springton. Yeah, they did that in Spinal Tap, Spinal too. Tap? I think, yeah, right. well, like they say the wrong name and everybody just goes silent. And yeah, yeah, so in a sense, it's like, it's sort of like the creation of the perception of disorder and, uh, and rowdiness in an environment that's actually highly controlled and, and highly uh, managed, stage managed mm -hmm. and audience managed. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the, the the question that you're asking: When did we start to applaud, or or how did we applaud or not or respond differently mm -hmm. in earlier moments? Is really wrapped up in this larger set of questions about what does it mean to be Why a member of an audience? Why yeah. are we going? So interesting. And I'm also again, I, I keep going off on tangents, but <laughs> I'm thinking about different. Uh, musical genres you know what I mean and like I've gone to see performances where it's it's you know just deadly silent and a performer at a piano and it's everyone's basically holding their breath and then and I've gone to performances where it's you know it's exactly how you describe there's a pit it's screaming it's like people you know singing along at the top of their lungs with their arms around each other and just the the dynamic of that and it's I, I'm so struck because it never occurred to me really the difference is what we as an audience are doing with each other. It's not what kind of music is being played. It's more like, are we mesmerized and staring and holding our breath and not moving? Or are we really looking around at who else is in the audience with us as an audience? I don't know. I just, again, I'm just, I'm really so stuck because it always occurred to me, well, this is the kind of show where we sit and we are quiet and we listen to her at her piano versus like, I'm running up front and elbowing everyone who gets in my way. Um, I just, it's, it's about the audience. It's not about the music. Well, yes. And yes. I mean, and I, I yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, I, I, yes, I, I think it's very much so. And, and I would say that like the notion of genre in music mm -hmm. um, is, is a sorting mechanism itself that yeah. segregates oh, yeah. audiences. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so I, I was kind of making the argument earlier that the venue is a, a media technology that channels audiences to, um, to promoters and to, mm -hmm. you know, to operators and producers. Um, 
And genre is is also a mechanism that does this. It separates, True. you know, like the the goth kids from the metalheads, <laughs> from the hippies, right. from it's the like, classical music people. And right. each of these different genres is also associated with different logics of comportment, mm -hmm. different notions of how you behave. So and shared most, values, yeah, yeah. And most of like, so for example, the what we understand today to be classical music mm -hmm. um, is associated with a really different kind of set of behaviors from popular music right. um you know you 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 have to sit still and be quiet you clap not every time the music stops even. right god Certainly forbid in, the in between there's, the movements <laughs> right there's right. a specific moment when yeah. an applause is is permitted. and you're waiting for them to show you you know what i mean you wait for the performer to put his bow down and then you know it's over because there's been exactly. all this fight it's it's very nerve-wracking you don't know yet <laughs> unless and, you know the, the piece by heart yeah the, the errant the errant clap becomes right. a marker of of Ignorance. social distinction, right? Yeah. They, oh, they, they don't know. Yeah. They, they're not they're properly so right. cultured. Um, they they clapped at the wrong time. So, uh, I mean, there was the the book Highbrow Lowbrow, uh, which which is I think from the eighties. Okay. Maybe the nineties. Um, is is a, a a book that's largely about the work that different kinds of culture and sort of gradations of cultural production do to sort out populations off of mm. a class. Mm. Um, and you know this is this is very clear. One thing that I found fascinating is um, the rise of classic rock mm. and kind of the 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 path that classic rock has taken as its audience has gotten older and older. Right. So right. So right. you know, like the 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 format as a radio station format emerges in the '90s. Okay. Um, maybe the '80s, but I think the '90s is really when classic rock becomes a, a format on, on FM yeah. radio. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those, you know, those artists, uh, you know, the the big obvious one that's still going is is like the Rolling Stones, Stones Aerosmith, um, yeah. Yeah, they're they're still playing year after year, summer after summer. They're still getting on the or Bruce Springsteen is he's right. he's going on on tour. I think this year or next year or something like that um you know and he's he's got to be in his 70s i would yeah. think and yeah. and his crowd is certainly that old for the yes. most part mm -hmm. um and if you go to one of these shows i've i've been to a few of them i i actually went with my parents about uh right around the time that i shifted from french to media studies bruce <laughs> okay. and up bruce the stones came to to duke they played at wallace wade stadium but uh you know so that was i mean that's already 15 years ago but i went right. I, my parents happened to be visiting so i like you know got us tickets and we went um they had never seen the stones before i'd never seen the stones before they were great you know it's like theater yeah they're amazing and all that um but it, it's very much like the crowd is seated mm. and they're attentive and mm -hmm. they're waiting and i you know i i'm i have to imagine today when the stones play it's even more so because their crowd is, is even older even older for them you yeah. know they're they're not making a lot of new rolling stones fans right um right and so you know i think about like um i i have, I have friends who went to genesis they they did a tour which apparently is their last tour phil collins i guess is not doing well um mm. was having trouble standing can't play the drums anymore um and so my you know my friends who like me are you know we're middle-aged we're in our 40s um they they went um and uh they said they were like the youngest people there mm -hmm. and the, i guess the sound was really low oh wow so, it wasn't like, even that they, loud yeah this was that they they went to um the new boston garden which isn't even that new anymore um and uh you know they we we've been to shows in, in arenas before and like it's usually loud yeah but i definitely. guess uh the genesis sound was was 
quiet. It doesn't go to 11. It doesn't, they didn't, they don't turn it up to go to 11 any longer. And, you know, it's in part a response to what kind of audience is it that they're playing to. Yeah. And I I actually, you know, I couldn't help but have the thought there's probably a higher representation of Genesis fans who um, use uh, assistive hearing Hearing aids. Yeah. And And, and really loud music is painful with a hearing True. aid as as are um, you know probably a lot of the folks in the band and on this crew you know what i mean like they yeah maybe not they, the crew but certainly the band yeah. so it's an accommodation in a sense how how high do exactly. you turn it up how do you tune the bass relative right. to the to the mid frequencies and the highs how do you set it up becomes as much an accommodation to the varying abilities of the performers and certainly the audience, certainly the audience um yeah. as as it is a, a way to um mesh with a certain kind of audiencing that right. uh, that the audience met, you know the spectators are performing from from the stand um and one of the things i i hope to do in the years to come is mm-hmm. is finagle my way into uh some of the industry conferences that mm. handle like the ticketing industry and the arena management industry and and kind of get a sense of what it is that they're they're talking about and what it is yeah. that they're worried about or, or concerned about i have the sense that what they're really interested in doing right now is finding ways to fine tune the various dimensions of their offerings mm-hmm. uh, in order to meet the needs mm-hmm. of their different audiences for different kinds of events that they, that they stage at their, um, in their buildings. Yeah. Um, so food service levels, um, what time drinks. the show starts is another yeah, way. I mean, yeah, the, those, you know. those kinds of things have long been done, you know, like kids yeah. shows start at three or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The Globetrotters do two shows a day. It's true. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, but, even yeah. now it's like, I see a show that starts that, you know, starts at, seven or six and i'm like oh, yes because <laughs> i'm i'm in that dynamic i'm in yeah, that I go branch right now i'm just like i will get home and be in bed before 11 that's fantastic right. yeah so interesting i could talk about this for hours but i i, I want to respect your time but i do want to ask you you did make mention of a book so i wanted to ask what's next for you research wise and what's what's kind of coming down the pike for you so that we can be on the lookout for it yeah so um my main project is uh is this book project which is called enclosing performance and okay. it's uh it tells the the sort of media theoretical story of the event venue of the stadium the arena the theater the music hall as a technology that does all the stuff we've been talking about today mm-hmm. that um shapes content and channels it to audiences and shapes audiences and delivers them to to promoters and producers mm. um so it's one part media theory one part um uh history of technology one part science technology studies and one uh, even a little bit of um performance studies mixed in there um yeah. trying to make sense of what are the conditions under which cultural performance is staged um especially as it interfaces with capital yeah. Um, so that's that's my main project. Um, um, I'm working on that book right now. Okay. My other main projects, um, I the one that I kind of put on the back burner when I started this one, um, is called the lurking the lurking problem, mm. um, and it's it's a new media studies project uh, that is to do with um, the practices of not generating content when the generation of content is expected. Um, so this is this is what we're doing most of the time when we're online. We're yep. you know despite all the the discourse of how social media democratizes everything and everyone's a participant all the time. Most of us aren't. Most of us aren't. Yeah. Um, at least most of the time. Uh, and so that project is looking at um, how how that logic works and what it means to be a user and how lurking becomes this sort of everyday uh deviant act that subverts the the logics of userdom 
Um, a piece of that actually just came out last summer um, and was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in a book <laughs> called, um, yeah, a book called, a really cool book by, um, it was edited by two amazing historians of computing, Janet Abadi of uh, Virginia Tech and Stephanie Dick of Stephan of uh, Simon Fraser University. The book is called Abstractions and Embodiments, and it's it's a collection of 20 odd essays by a range of scholars um, across um, disciplines who all touch on one dimension or another of um, computing history and the way it affects uh, social structures and um, uh, power structures. Um, and so I, I was really thrilled to, to get a chance to, to be part of that group. And I'm really grateful to Johns Hopkins University Press for publishing it. Um, and then I do have a smaller kind of side project that that's about popular music um, and mediation. Um, and so that one is is not nearly as well formed, and that might be like a a third project if I if I have time in my, uh, in my career to to get that far. Gotcha. So we'll see. Um, this obviously has been so fascinating and is is just uh, squarely in my in my curiosity wheelhouse. So thank you so much for this, taking so much time to talk about this. Uh, good luck with the book and uh, enjoy your sabbatical. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Krishner. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mary Alice. It's, it's been a real uh, great treat to talk to you. I, I appreciate you taking the time. This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.